Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and I'll be teaching from the Scriptures today out of the book of Revelation as we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this wonderful book. Right now, we're in chapter 15 of this uh, prophetic book that I think is a very interesting and, and, of course, very hard-to-teach kind of book. So I hope that you'll follow along with me today if you have a copy of God's Word and would like to follow. I'm in Revelation chapter 15, and I'll be reading verses 5 through 8. The Word of God reads, beginning in in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 15, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded about their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, upon first look at that, you might be confusing as to what it all this is speaking of. It's speaking of the, the final wrath, the final judgment that is about to be poured out that we see as seven bowls of judgment that will happen, actually happen in verse or chapter 16. So chapter 15 is the prelude to that. It's introducing that. It is showing us the preparation of that from heaven. We're able to look directly into heaven at an amazing view, amazing scene that is happening, indicating for us the very serious nature of what is about to take place. In fact, we saw last week, these are the worst of the the blows upon the earth. These are the worst of of the plagues that we said was basically rendered, according to the original language, death blows. These are deadly killing blows that will be poured out in seven bowls of wrath that will come in the next chapter. So this introduces them. And last week I said it is, we're going to lay this out in three main points to the outline. And the points have to do with the reasons that demand this wrath. The very reasons that demand this wrath. And the first one I gave you last week as the reasons that demand the wrath is the vengeance of God. We have been able to look at some of this in pointing to the fact that God's vengeance is predominantly uh, spoken of in the scriptures in such a way as that we need to take note of them. We can see by way of introduction to this that God's wrath is, is very, a very serious thing to take. Uh, it's not something you can hide from. It will be uh, worldwide, and it will be very much a part of the tribulation period. And I think the point of this, uh, of what I'm making here in the vengeance of God, is the one of the. It's the first reason that demands the wrath of God. I think the point I'm making is this: God sends His wrath as an act of vengeance for the way His own people have been treated. That may seem like a strange thing to you, but we've already been looking at some of this in the Scriptures. We saw it in Revelation chapter 6. We saw it in 7. And we've seen it in other places. We're going to see it here. I think this is a wonderful thing to be able to call to mind some of the passages of the Scriptures in general that speak of this. You remember, for example, back in Matthew 18, verse 7, he said, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Woe to the world, he says, if your hand or foot cause you to stumble. 
cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet be cast into the eternal fire. Or if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. For it's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. He's saying, do whatever, do what, saying to you, better do whatever necessary to make sure you don't stumble or cause someone to stumble, cause a Christian to stumble. That would be a very dangerous thing according to the scriptures. Someone who causes, in fact, it references Christians as those little ones who uh, come to him, who believe in him, causing them to stumble. It is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned into the depths of the sea. You'd be better off dead than live long enough to cause a Christian to be offended. God will wreak vengeance on those who have offended his people. In fact, really, this is what the, uh, the sheep goat judgment of Matthew chapter 25 is basically about. He takes those on his left who are the goats and casts them into eternal fire for the way they treated his people. Because whatever they did to them, they in effect did it to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, the scriptures are full of prophecies concerning the vengeance of God. It may be one, as I was talking to someone last week, who's never thought about God getting vengeance. But yet, even the New Testament says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let me just give you a couple of examples in scripture that talk about vengeance. In Psalm 94, a very important statement of God's vengeance on those who afflict his people. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, says the psalmist. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly, they do wickedness. All who do wickedness vault themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. And he goes on to say, how long will this happen? So he's calling upon that. And then down in verse 21 of that same psalm, Psalm 94. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous. They condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord God will destroy them. You see, these are frightening terms. To think about God having vengeance upon anyone is a a very frightening thing. In Romans chapter 12, we remember the words, don't we? Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, and here's what I quoted a while ago, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Those are frightening words. God is going to come in an avenging hour. And one of the reasons that the Lord is bringing his wrath to avenge his own, in chapter 6, we saw it with the saints under the altar of Revelation Chapter 6 and also in chapter 7, I said we saw it. An innumerable host of, un, of, of believers gathered out of every tribe, tongue, people, nations of the world who have been martyred by their, for their faith by senseless, unbelieving unbelievers uh, who kill them. In chapter 12, we saw the efforts to massacre Israel. And we were introduced to those who shed their own blood and didn't love their life even to death. And those who were killed because of the word of their testimony. It's the saints who are faithful and triumph during these times who gather in heaven. And they're, they're there to watch as God inflicts vengeance 
It's hard to imagine, isn't it? That they're in heaven and they're calling for vengeance. How long, O Lord, are you going to wait to avenge our blood, as Revelation 6 says, on those who inflict his beloved people? You see, when you touch God's people, the Old Testament says you're touching the apple of his eye. That's simply a Hebrew way of saying, you stick your finger in my eye, and that irritates me. The apple of the eye is the pupil, and God will avenge his people. So the very first reason in this chapter uh, for wrath is is implied is the scene of the glorified saints who overcome the, the, the power of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and triumph faith go to all the way to heaven. You see, they've been massacred. They've been killed. They've been slaughtered. We don't have any ideas, we said last week, of the kinds of death they had, to, they had to withstand. Their faith did not die. Their faith was able to stand. They were not deceived. They were, they were totally able to stand firm in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. These dear people who lived during the period of time will go through such frightening and inconceivable terrors and their lives will be taken from them in ways that are no doubt excruciatingly painful, and they will endure the severest persecution that the world has ever known. And yet, when the smoke clears, they're standing on the very crystal sea, as we introduced this last week in Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. They're seen standing, and they're not seen just standing. They're standing and they're singing. They're singing triumphant songs of praise as as they're before the Father. And so we are able to see this. In fact, that brings me to the second point that I introduced last week. The second point for the reasons that demand this wrath. The first one is the vengeance of God. But the second one, I said, is the character of God, or pretty clearly here, the nature of God. So number one is the vengeance of God. Number two is the nature of God. And I introduced that to you last time by looking at these very songs that are sung. In chapter 15, if you'll notice verse 3 and verse 4, it says in verse 3, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And then it gives the words. Now the song of the Lamb, we said, is found in Revelation chapter 5. And it is sung there. And then the song of Moses, which is sung. And we gave some illustrations of those, so I won't rehash those. But I want to continue along this vein. You might be saying, well, I'm reading those psalms, and I go back and I look and and say Exodus chapter 19, for example, and I I see that the words are a little bit different. And I said for that, perhaps there are different stanzas, there's different ways to sing it. We don't know, but we do know it is from that. So when you look at the songs, you see two. You see the song of Moses. Now, when you go to the Old Testament, you'll see two parts to that. One that's uh, the Song of Moses, and then another part that was played at his death. But then there's the Song of the Lamb, and those two combined give the expressions of what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 15. Now, under the nature of God, the expressions of God's nature that are in these songs, uh, we see, Great and marvelous are thy works, uh, When you look at verse 3, that's how it begins. Great and marvelous are thy works. And we're talking about the very nature of God. That's what makes up these songs that, remember, these are victorious, celebratory believers now having come through the tribulation period, standing on the crystal sea of glass, singing songs of expressing 
uh, of gratitude to God and singing about the very nature and the character of God. When it says, great and marvelous are thy works, that views God as creator. Every one of those lines comes out of some part of the Old Testament. This draws on Psalm 139, verse 14. Uh, O Lord God the Almighty sounds like an echo of Amos chapter 4, verse 13, and looks at God as the omnipotent God. Righteous and true are thy ways. You can just go right down through here, which uh, seems to echo Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, or even Deuteronomy 32, 4. And it means that God is immutable. God is unchanging. He does not change. He is always right. He's always true. He's always absolutely consistent and unchanging. And so when we look at this song, we're singing about the very nature of God. And then it looks at his sovereignty and draws from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7. It says, the king of the nations, thou king of the nations, referring to his sovereignty. Uh, He is the creator who is omnipotent, immutable, unchanging, and sovereign, who will not fear and glorify thy name. Drawn from Psalm 86, verse 9, and many other psalms. For thou alone art holy, speaks of his absolute moral perfection. It's reminiscent, I think, of Isaiah chapter 6, where we read that God is holy, holy, holy. All these saints are singing about the very character and the nature of God, calling Him the Creator, the Omnipotent One, the Immutable One, the Sovereign One, the Worthy and Absolutely Perfect One, the Righteous One, the True One. He is holy Therefore, he must judge. Therefore, he can judge and will judge. A righteous, true, holy God must judge sin and sinners of a fallen world. A great and mighty creator, an omnipotent, that means all-powerful, almighty God can judge because he has the power. His character, therefore, demands that he do it. Now, we may not like it, In fact, when we read this, we're reading about judgment that's going to be poured out on human beings. Now, these human beings may be people that we know. We're probably not going to be there uh, if the rapture is true, and I think the rapture is true. I think it will happen. So we won't see this, but just to think about those, perhaps even our loved ones or family, that if they don't know Christ, if they don't come to a point of trusting Christ, they will be of the unbelievers that will experience this. People, in our eyes, might be good people. They might be attractive people, lovely people. Nevertheless, they are people. And God will judge. If He lets sin go unpunished, He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be true. He wouldn't be holy. And if he couldn't do anything about it, even though he didn't like it, he wouldn't be the creator. He wouldn't be great. He wouldn't be marvelous. He wouldn't be almighty. But you see, God is all of those things. These songs are singing true words, and they're being sung in heaven by those who have come through the tribulation period with their faith still intact, even though they lost their lives. And they're singing about that. I think the, the prophet Habakkuk put it so well. As I, I know we've studied Habakkuk and it looks, it's just, you, to go back and even read Habakkuk is like reading the, today's newspaper. But Habakkuk put it this way. You are pure. Your eyes are so pure. 
too pure to be then to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. God cannot tolerate it, he's saying. He will destroy it. It is set for destruction. God's nature calls for judgment. Nahum, the prophet, you don't probably don't hear his name very much. Not often read, not often taught. In fact, I mentioned Nahum one day in church, and somebody said, Nay, pronounce that again. Uh, he says a lot about the nature of God. Nahum chapter 1, just a couple of verses, verse 3, uh, uh, verse 6, and verses 3 and 6. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Oh my goodness, there it is. Then verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Then the next comforting verse. Listen to this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Then it flips over again, and the next verse says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and pursue his enemies into darkness. Man, it's, it's a tremendous thing to go back and read Scripture in light of the newer revelation found in, say, the book of Revelation. It's just incredible how God's Word always is so true and accurate. You see, God loves His own. God hates the sinner. And ultimately, His justice, His righteousness, and holiness demand that He punish now, I know some of you may have just twitched when I said that. But God does love His own. And God does hate the sinner. And I know people will say, oh, but God loves the sinner and hates the sin. But you know, that's just not consistent with Scripture. In fact, before Christ, before we trust Christ, we are considered to be God-haters. Enmity against God. You see, God hates the sinner. And ultimately, His justice and righteousness and holiness... Demand that he punish. Job, remember Job asked the question, does the Almighty pervert justice? The answer is no way. Psalm 19.9 answers the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So God's nature calls for wrath. It's consistent with who he is. Even if he has to send it in, through his son, which he did in Christ Jesus when he died on the cross. Then the psalm closes in verse, back in verse 4. And it closes out with this. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. Literally, will come in fear. In other words, the whole earth will come to worship or to fear. As Psalm 66, 4 says. You see, this is fulfillment in some some part at least, of Philippians chapter 2, every knee shall bow the things in the earth and under the earth and in the heavens and declare that Jesus is Lord. Isaiah 66, 23 is another look at the same thing. And it shall be from the new moon of the Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me. That's what it says there. Well, why is God going to judge? Why is this, uh, why are the reasons that demand this Number one, the vengeance of God on the outline. Number two, the nature of God. But then I want to look at number three. And number three is uh, very important. I'm not going to spend too long on this, but I'll spend the rest of the time on this. Number three is his sovereign will. His sovereign or the sovereignty of God. Number one is the vengeance of God that demand the wrath. 
Number two, the nature of God demands the wrath. And number three, the sovereignty of God demands the wrath. You see, we are actually peering into heaven when we get to chapter 15 and watching as the very sovereign act of God unfolds as we see His order or His plan being played out right in front of us. It's very clear that there is a plan being executed, and each of the angelic players in this unfolding drama gets into place to fulfill their role in this. And we've said many times, angels very much are taking part in so many phases of the judgment and the wrath. Sometime in the past, a lake of fire was prepared right for the devil and his angels. A lake of fire where people will be tormented forever along with the demons out of the holy environment of the kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. The lake of fire has been there and the holy angels have been waiting in all honesty to populate it, to bring the plan into action. You think, wow, what a plan. What an amazing thing. Now, this is the time. This is the prelude to this all coming to, to, to action. Verse 5, after these things. You see that? Notice verse 5 of chapter 15 of Revelation. After these things, I looked. And the temple of... Uh, uh, after these things, I looked. And the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. This marks a change in the vision that John saw after having looked through the transparent platform, that crystal that we described for you. Uh, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. That reminds us of chapter 11, verse 19, where it says this in Revelation. The temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. The Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. You remember, right? It was a little box. Primarily function of that little box was to contain the law of God. The Ark of the Covenant was the repository of God's law. The tablets of stone on which he had written the law of Moses. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the tabernacle and in the temple in what is called the Holy of Holies. There was the outer court. There was the holy place. Then there was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year because it was the place representative of the residence of God. Man, it's the holiest of all places. And in that place was the Ark of the Covenant. A little box with cherubim on each side. Cherubim was an elite kind of angel. With uh, spreading his wings over the law of God inside. Now, look at verse 5 again. The Ark of the Covenant. Now stay with me. Look at verse 5. It says, The Ark of the Covenant also had another name. The other name is given right here in verse 5. And look how it says it. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. The Ark of the Covenant is the tabernacle of testimony. It's just another name for the Ark of the Covenant. Tabernacle just means container. It can mean tent. It can mean anything that contains something. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the testimony. Well, you might ask, well, what testimony, Pastor? Is it, is it combined or is it covering? It's the testimony of God or God's revelation. So John looks directly into heaven where he is and told to write. And he looks right into the Holy of Holies. That's the temple right into the sanctuary, right into the inner chamber where God dwells, where the Ark of the Covenant is placed. 
That's what he's saying. I saw right into where God dwells. Incredible passage of Scripture. Now, he didn't word it quite like that. He says, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. By the way, if you want an Old Testament text where the Ark of the Covenant is called the tabernacle of testimony, you find it in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. And it stresses to us the most important feature of the tabernacles, that little box, that tabernacle. Not the big one, the tent, was that it was the dwelling place for the law of God. And there were other things in there. Moses' rod that budded. You remember reading that. Some of you may, not, may be a little foggy on it, but you remember reading about Moses' rod that budded. They collected that, the manna, things that, uh, like that that are remembrances. But the primary function of that little box was to contain the testimony. The great revelation of the will of God, the testimony that he had established in Jacob. I think we see that in Psalm 78, 5. The tablets of stone on which God wrote the Ten Commandments in God's testimony revealing his own perfect holiness to man and his standard of holiness for men. It sums up the whole teaching of the holiness in those ten statements. You see, all scripture is divinely inspired, but the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is divinely inscribed, as one writer puts it. Another writer says, written by the very finger of God on tablets of stone and placed temporarily in an earthly tabernacle as peculiar as this was. The peculiar treasure of his chosen people and now enshrined in heaven. And so John looks at the vision as a vision, something other than the reality that we know it. He sees right into the holy place where the heavenly tabernacle of testimony is placed. Do you think, why would God tell us that? Well, this, remember, people during the, the uh, tribulation period are going to be reading this. They're going to be reading about these triumphant believers who are now in heaven, triumphantly standing on that crystal glass, having finished out their life on earth through perhaps a awful massacre. Well, those that haven't been massacred yet, or thinking they're probably next to be massacred, looks at this. And sees maybe their family member or their friends or their acquaintances. And sees where they are and what they're doing. You think that's not going to encourage them? You think that's not going to comfort them? As he's looking, the, uh, th- this is a, an amazing thing that John sees and it's open. But listen, it was open to the faithful so that they could see in. Now it's open for the unfaithful so that the judgment can come out. You get that? It's opening up now so that judgment can flow out of that. Verse 6, and out of the very inner sanctuary of heaven of heavens, out of the dwelling place of God, seven angels who had seven plagues come. That's what it says in verse 6. The seven angels who had the seven plagues come out of the temple. Then it talks about their clothing. It's time for them to act. These seven angels are lofty. They're holy angels. They're clothed in a way that would present that. To magnify that. This description here is just magnifying the beauty, the clean, shining, glowing, brilliant, dazzling linen is evidence of the indication of their holiness and their purity. Which, by the way, it's also the garment of the armies in heaven in Revelation 19 as we return with Christ. Yep, that's what we're going to be wearing. And so their pure and holy is evidence by the beauty of 
clean and dazzling and brilliant. And then verse 7, the four living creatures are cherubim. By the way, you remember we studied them back in Revelation 4 and 5. We talked about their description, how they have wings. and These are high-ranking angels, very unique. They're originally introduced to us in that chapter. They have a hand. They hand to these seven angels ready to execute the seven bowl judgment. It's interesting to note that the bowls here translated, it's really not a, the word bowl like we would think of, like a bowl of soup. It's really more like a shallow saucer. And one writer puts it that that's indicative, by the way, of the judgment and how quick it will come, how easy it is to just pour out this. Such a golden bowl, by the way, was, was often associated with temple worship in the past. And here in the very temple of God, the true temple, out comes the four, one of the living creatures. He's got seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. They are the golden bowls and they're going to be dumped and emptied instantly. The psalmist said, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. I will take the cup of salvation. And then this note at the end of verse 7, God is described. The wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And really, isn't that... Really the main point to all of this? The eternal God will not have sin and sinners destroying his universe, as one writer puts it. He's going to live forever, but he's not going to allow sin to live forever. And so this is the unfolding of his sovereign plan, which again is point three of this outline. He will destroy sin. He will destroy sinners. He will remove them from his presence and the presence of his redeemed, from the environment of his holy creation. You see, God's plan is holiness. His sovereign plan is being looked at. His, in, in this chapter, we're seeing the unfolding of it. God's sovereign plan is peace, it's perfection, it's joy. And this indicated to us as we shall see in chapter 21. But look how chapter 8 closes out this section. The temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about this this cloud of smoke that's coming from the glory of God. It's called glory smoke. I don't know what else to call it. You remember when Isaiah went into the temple and he had a vision of God? The place was filled with smoke. We find it again in Exodus chapter 40. We find it in 1 Kings chapter 8. We find it over and over again in wrath. God remembers mercy, but mercy refuses to bring judgment. You know what? This doesn't happen until the world has been warned and warned and warned. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. This is the way this chapter closes out. As a warning, really. It's going to happen. Now imagine reading this in the tribulation period, knowing, here it comes, it's about to happen. And boy, when it happens, it comes quick, it comes fast and furious. Well, that's it for today. Next week, we'll look at chapter 16. Thank you again for joining us as we're walking through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 15. We're finishing chapter 15. Next week we'll begin chapter 16. And so once again, I thank you for listening to another broadcast of Hope from the Heart.